0: Hey, good to see Hi. you, Phil. Uh
1: I'm gonna put my headphones in, I'm hearing you on the speaker, don't I? Yeah. That's oh, not plugged in, that's why. I've got myself the podcast mic mic here, look. SM7. <laughs> the famous podcast mic.
0: Nice. Yeah, I'm just using the mic in my uh in my MacBook Pro because I it turns out it sounds best with my voice. And also in the setting because I have the like the fridge here and stuff, and when I use like a proper mic, it picks up everything in the room.
1: <laughs> so yeah, that just sounds good. Yeah, voice sounds good. Sometimes there can be a disparity, can't there? Somebody's using a good mic, and so I did an a, a, a interview recently and uh, we were sort of podcasting, and, and the sound on the the the, the guy talking to me was just like,
0: and mine was kind of
1: this posh sound, you know. So anyway.
0: Yeah, you know, I have lots of um, trouble with, you know, because everything I do here is via the internet and then the connections are sometimes really horrible, but I've sort of like made that part of the experience because like these conversations are meant to be totally real and just, you know, the way it is and sort of like a reflection of this, um, this period uh, we're in where like people are kind of like starting to... um, Work and communicate at a distance, you know, much more than just a year ago, right? And yeah. and so, but the technology uh, hasn't really caught up, and, and certainly not the uh, the internet connections. Like right? so, when talking no. with people in parts of the world where there's still bad internet, you know, then it, it shows in these uh, conversations. But uh, that's okay, you know. So,
1: yeah, yeah a strange time, isn't it? I mean, just just a lot of. I mean, I've seen so many uh I, I actually started having conversations with drummers i was just looking at one actually i did a, a last summer did a pe- series of conversations with drum drummer friends of mine and and uh, I, I thought the problem was the audio was really bad actually it wasn't that bad you know but i, I think the, the the weird thing is uh, you know my friend one is a, like a weird angle i think there probably should be audio podcast but what i what i said to these guys was i would do it again but actually uh, the stuff they're talking about is really cool so I'll, I'll make them audio podcasts and, and I mean they're actually really long I mean like, people like Jeremy Stacy, people that like Steve white you know I mean, like 90 minute conversations so I have to chop it up I think you know for the podcast vibe but it's great it's really nice to have these conversations And like yourself, you know being a musician uh, being a drummer, uh, you know, I can maybe extract you know things from drummers you know you know and, and knowing their history. I'd, li- I'd like to, talk- I mean, I'm talking to my friends at the moment. Like, I want to talk to people like Ash Stone and Carl Brazil and these sort of guys, you know. But I'd also like to have conversations with uh, people like Dave Mattox and Bill Bruford and these these people that inspired me. Because what's interesting talking to Jeremy and Ash and Carl was they sort of came through Level 42, you know. And I think it was kind of cool for them in their teens to ha- to the- that there was a British band that was kind of, Kind of musical, doing some instrumentals, and getting a deal, and getting you know that kind of thing. Uh, but for me, I was inspired to play by people like Bill Bruford and, and Dave Mattox and Billy Cobham and, and all those guys. I thought Billy Cobham. So it's interesting, you know what what you go through as a teen, you know uh, to to sort of develop things, you know. When I, you know, this yeah. This is, I mean, what's interesting about the world that we live in now? What the world I knew when I was a kid on the Isle of white. Was that I had access to very little stuff, you know, compared to what you have now. Of course, British television, bless it, only had the two shows, top of the pops. Well, it had three things top of the pops were out and out pop music, which occasionally had a good thing, David Bowie or something, or the Ogre Wuster Test, which was a rock mm-hmm. show, and that had everything from hippie music to fusion. And then you have in concert, you know, maybe a 25 minute in concert thing on BBC Two. But that was it, no VCR, you didn't record it, you had to just watch it and remember it, you know. So I remember like, the, when, I, when I first heard Thrust by Herbie Hancock, I think mm-hmm. the guy that played me that, uh, Bill, it was a wonderful guy that played, put, dropped loads of bombs on me, you know, this guy, mm-hmm. but that he was the only one to have Thrust on the Isle of Wight, I'm sure of it, you know. So it was kind of that rare, this stuff was, if somebody had a copy of Sweet Night at my weather report, it was really... It was like gold dust, you know, you, you know. So nobody would lend you their albums because you'd
0: steal them, you know. You know, the, the first time I was actually aware of um, an album or record as a piece of art, I was already 10, 11 years old or something, which like nowadays, yeah. like my my 18-month-old uh, girl, she already understands uh, that somehow, at least it seems like it. And it's really it's really interesting, like these, this generational... Um, Uh, changes that happen as we, you know, sort of, as we, uh, we ourselves kind of go through these phases in our life. And, um, and yeah, like for me, I was born in 72. So it was still, it was still a little bit like you described, right? Like, you know, I, I didn't have much access to, to music other than um, mainstream radio. And like, interestingly enough, like in the seventies, mainstream radio in Germany was kind of, was kind of Okay. You know, like you, you could hear good yeah. stuff, and 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 in the eighties was was the same. And uh, as you said, like uh, VCR in the in the mid eighties, that's also like, I guess like when I first saw uh, Level Forty Two shows, which were maybe like Rockpalast, uh, oh, yeah. uh, you know, shows or something like that. Um, yeah, I know. That's the, it's it's really interesting because I wonder how the uh, available availability of all this stuff sort of changes the the development of passion in people, right? And, and I do yeah. not know if it does or how it does. You know, I would I would hope it doesn't really um, kill potential passion in people. But, I mean, what, what do you think?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can see it both ways. It's great that people can go on YouTube or Spotify and, and access Billy Holiday, Frank Sinatra, Hendrix, you know, Return to Forever, whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. But I also quite like the world where you you know a handful of things, because uh, I'm self-taught. You know, I, I had a I had a teacher for the first three weeks of drumming, and uh, you know he he told me that yeah I think you should do that. But then he left. He left the other way. He disappeared. You know, so I never had a teacher. So I was kind of figuring things out, and I quite like the idea of that. I I had a copy of uh, Gentle Giant in in a glass house, or yes, you know, fragile and i was kind of trying i was i was trying to figure out how to do that my own way not being mm-hmm. shown how to do it not going on youtube and saying, oh that's how you do it you know i had to kind of figure it out and i made as a self-taught drummer i made you know ridiculous technical i made it very hard for myself the way i played you know and um, mm-hmm. because it just seemed to me that's how you know it's the grip that sticks in a very kind of tight way it wasn't until years later when i saw omar hakim um play with weather report in 83 that I, I could see that you could hold the sticks in another way, and we didn't. You know, there weren't there weren't gigs in the 70s. All the gigs stopped in the 60s. You know, so like it was. Uh, the Isle of Wight was a kind of weird place, but in a good way because like I was very lucky because um, although my mum didn't have much money, when we moved back to the Isle of Wight when I was a, a baby or a kid, two year old actually, um, my father was a, a, a journalist working in the Far East. He did have money at that point, so we bought a big house. The thing was. Within a year or two, his career had collapsed. He never came back to the UK, so we were, we were raised in a single-parent single family. So my mum was always out working, and we didn't have... We probably we lived on a council estate around the back of our house. We probably had less money than those guys. But the thing was, we had this big house. So when my mum was out working and my brother and I got into playing music, we made this god-awful racket, and we could get away with it because we had a bit of a garden, you know, and mm-hmm. we were away from the other houses. So we were really lucky like that. So we filled that space... With music, and we figured it out. Both my brother and I self-taught. We figured figured it out. You know, of course, he made loads of mistakes, but it became quite interesting. Um, that we, I'm I'm quite glad that I didn't have access to. I mean, I had two uh, two drum books that I worked out of: the Buddy Rich book of snare drum rudiments, and the Wilcox and solos, 126. And that was it. You know, I didn't I didn't I didn't do any independence. I didn't do anything else. And When I started studying classical. Um, Uh, you know for classical percussion I had the Morris Goldenberg books I went to the academy so I had to learn tune percussion but I never did it jazz independence I never did uh, kit playing I mean I could sometimes I I would sometimes read these these books and if be somebody teaching you to play the paradiddle between the kick and snare and I go well that's bloody obvious you know. I I, I figured that out ages ago Mm -hmm. and like I think I did a thing when I was 16 and you're talking about 1973 you're a year old and I did this thing because I was hearing people like Ian Pace, drummers like Ian pace and Bonham doing that you know that thing with the Toms and the kick mm-hmm. you know? but I was doing it good 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 like and I had never heard of Alvin Jones I never I never heard him Well, I'd, I later heard John Coltrane. so I did hear it but that thing where you do the Tom thing and good good and I was doing that at 16 and now you hear all these gospel guys doing it and I'm going, I think I invented that myself. I didn't I, nobody showed me how to do that gospel mm-hmm. thing or the mm-hmm. Alvin Jones thing. I figured that out. Also the paradiddle diddle you know, when you do right, left, right, right, left, left. Mm-hmm. I actually before I got the Buddy Rich book, I I I somebody told me how to do a parallel and why don't I do a parallel that dot dot dot? So I invented the paradiddle diddle, you know. <laughs> like I you know, I could I did actually read it, but actually when I've read it in Buddy Rich Book, I went, hang on, that's mine. Um, but I, I, I quite like the idea that um, that there's all this, you know, there's a kind of ethos. Uh, there's something in the ether about what you do with all this stuff and you can actually find your own way there rather than just being given to you, you know. There's something and cool about that.
0: I think that that all the, um, the stuff that we work on as innocent people, right, like where we haven't heard these things, we kind of like contribute to... Um, what's the word here like a collective unconscious thing where yeah, yeah. you know suddenly suddenly these these things that you know they become available to uh, to everybody somehow because like one person has worked on a specific exercise let's say and then and and i mean it's 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 pretty much the same with especially with popular music because so many people hear it and then you can hear like when when for example in the late 80s early early 90s you had like the drum and bass stuff that started Right and yeah. ten year ten years later, people could play that way, right? Yeah. So it's you know and um, yeah, you, you see, yeah. Um, you know. Speaking of like uh, drumming drumming styles, like what you just described um, in the seventies, uh, I, I still kind of like really love that that uh, decade for the because the drummers played the drum kit like like one instrument. If that yeah. makes any sense, you know, it just just felt like it was is one thing. Like you hit one drum, but everything else resonates, right? And like nowadays, like things have developed in such a way that there are some drummers who play more like each instrument is an individual track in a DAW, yeah. right? And um, and I, I'm not so keen on that, <laughs> to be quite honest, even though uh, I I do belong to a younger generation.
1: Now. I think it's interesting that I had a chat conversation with... Um this guy called Robin Scott, the first session I ever did when I was for proper, you know, proper session was at Mountain Studios in Montreux. And it was like for pop, there was this uh, guy called Robin Scott. He had a massive hit all around the world that year with pop music, this this mm-hmm. sort of early early electronic pop track, you know. But what Robin wanted to do when I got to the studio was to, I, I you know, I had my sticks in my hand I came ready to play, you know. He said, he wants like 10 minutes of kick and snare. You know, I want you to come up with a, pattern and, and what, what what the hell is this to click I didn't even know that existed and you know until I arrived in Montreux I was just come off the other way a year before playing holiday cancer so I was horrified you know and then then Robin said well this is and he'd kind of been inspired by Giorgio Moroder and he wasn't Robin wasn't doing it necessarily to uh, other than for the separation you know he wanted to hear a kick without the spill, like you were just talking about, he wanted to hear it yep. completely free. So that was coming in at the end of the, as you got to the, into the middle part of the 70s, and towards the very end, it got very dead and dry, you know. And it wasn't until like, you know, 1980 with Steve Lillywhite White and then Prince and all these things, that drum sounds began to really open up again, cause, or in rock and pop music terms. Everything got really dead, you know. But it was kind of that idea that you would put, you know, a kick pattern floor on the floor or a pattern then you do the hi-hat and then you do the tons, you know and it was all to click so it's kind of wild I went from being this sort of um, purist drummer type person mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. going well the, the option I can spend the summer six weeks in Montreux doing this with this guy or I can go back to my flat in Clapham and clap and, you know and see if I can get a gig you know so I decided to I, started, I decided to say in Montreux so it was an amazing I mean what was interesting was me and I met Wally Battery on that session and so I've got a very strong connection with Wally. We got on really well. And then the following year we did another M album and I, I got Mark involved in that. So it was the three of us. So just before Level 42 happened, we did the second M album, The School Official Secrets, and we were working to click. And then when we got into Level 42, the first four Level 42 albums weren't to click, except for two tracks, I think, Kuyete and uh, "Charts Begun. Those, those were the click. So the first four ch- albums weren't to click, but we had that mentality. So if you listen to the first record, our timing was a little bit more advanced than some of our, our peers in England at that time or Britain, you know, because of that experience. Because we were, we had the discipline of actually, on the second ML, we did play rhythm tracks to click. And that was quite rare. It's about 1980. And that was quite rare at the time. I, I don't uh, I don't know when. Clicks became standard fare for recording artists. And it wasn't until the fifth level we took out, World Machine, that we, we recorded that, you know, except for one track to click. But it's kind of weird spending six weeks on a project where it's all really metronomic. And... Um, I was studying classical, I was at the Royal Academy of Music at the time, so I was, I was studying classical music, and of course that elastic kind of time with classical music, where you have to follow the conductor, is very hard for me to get my head around. And then Robin wanted me to do the parallel opposite, where I had to really look at my hand on the snare to make sure that the stick, as I was recording kick and snare patterns, the stick was coming up to the same place. So I was really analysing the time and motion, so it was a real... Interesting thing, and that's why I think level 42 in the early phase were really tight because mm-hmm. we had a slightly different mentality. I think you really go into our first album without those experiences of playing to click, I don't think we would have been as tight, you know, in our thinking, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think that you know, playing uh tight and and playing uh you know, uh, to a click is not the same thing, right? You can still have an organic way of the tempo change and still be tight as a band right and i exactly oh yeah and you know and and that's very much kind of like like what i experienced when i heard those uh rock gigs that uh, i mentioned you know that's insane energy really those those shows like i I really it it was it was really really i have to say it was a big influence in me as well just that energy yeah
1: yeah, yeah. We did. We, I said this, we did two rock palace shows. One was an in concert in a theatre, which was pretty really cool. That was eighty three, and then we did the big one in eighty four. I think it was an Olympia Hall in Munich or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, whatever that. would not the inner Hall but the the big space in Munich where they did the rock palace. Mm. About ten thousand, really huge crowd, and then I think John Cale and then Huey Lewis and the News, mm-hmm. and, and and we did it. But you know what? I think what happened was I think. The, the, the engineer had set it up for Huey Lewis that he had a lindrum triggered off the snare uh. and a, ki- a, a lindrum kick triggered off the kick for Huey Lewis because it was um, power of um, you know but of course with me like the, if you listen to I've got the DVD somewhere or the recording if you listen to me I, I do a press roll at the start of the first track we come yeah, on and, and you go in it, and it's going
0: yeah it's like,
1: like <laughs> what and we went back to the hotel and heard it a few hours later because it was kind of broadcast that night. And I was going, oh, my God, all these young German uh, drummers and musicians are going to think I'm this idiot going, (laughs) you know, I want to find that engineer, man. If you know who he is, you put me in touch with him. you completely screwed up. And like so it was wild because the first track, and it was a track called Almost There, you know, quite hardcore up-tempo funk thing. The snare was being triggered with the kick as well. It's going... (laughs)
0: i I do i do remember that but you know this is this is something i wanted to mention earlier already like for me as a musician sound quality for some reason is really not that important like i could listen to like the worst bootleg recording of my favorite artist, right and really enjoy it very much because i sort of hear through the Somehow, I, I just listen yeah. to the music. Well, I guess you know what I mean, right? So, and for me, yeah. it was a, was a big learning curve to kind of like understand that there's more uh, to the recording of music than just capturing the uh, the spirit, right? Right? There's also yeah, yeah. there's also yeah. the sound, you know. Yeah, it's kind of well, it's,
1: you know because like as you as you know now as you progressed in your charisma it's really hard to let go of the details you, you get you obsess over the details all the time and and like I've got the new album that's coming out I've, I've got one vocal which I just wish I could do again it's totally fine but I know there's a couple of lines I could do it's going to be like that forever it's always like that I, I go back to drum tracks I did in the past and go oh god I wish we could do that again it's kind of never ending and I think that's mm-hmm. what where you have to be like you know it's like when you're mixing you're uh, I, I was working with a, a fantastic engineer on my album, Julian Mendelssohn, who did some of the level 42 stuff and he's in Melbourne. So like, I think he was either eight hours ahead or nine hours, whatever, whatever, ahead or behind. So I was staying up all night and we were, you know, it's like two DB more of this, please. And one DB less of that. And you get so crazy with the, 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 the details. Mm. And then now you listen back to it. You can't remember that process, but you have to, you don't have to be like that. There's a lot of people like Ethan Jones, people that mix, by balancing, they just balance and get a nice overall thing. But I've, I've always been obsessed with the details. You know, I think you really have to, particularly with the, the layers that I have on, on the stuff that I'm doing, it's not yeah. complex music, but there's complex in terms of the layers, sonics, sonics of it. And, uh, and you just want to make sure it's as good as it can be. And, and then you have to be obsessive about these things. You have to kind yeah. of, it has, sure. to upset, has to upset you. If you can't, if you you get a drum, I mean, if I'm playing a groove, if I'm playing a track on stage and I I feel a snare beats ahead, it really does mess with my head. Like I I I have to be in that place you're only as good as your last bar you know as <laughs> as, a, as a drummer
0: you know yeah. yeah i think that's 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 sort of like the mind of a of a great musician right you're never satisfied and you're sort of, yeah yeah and it you know it shows in in you know not just in critiquing yourself or judging recordings but also in practicing and and kind of like trying to understand and like something that um you know I I don't know when I started following your Instagram or whatever it was and I saw you that you were actually playing the piano, you know, that was that was very nice to see that uh, you know like the funny thing is like when I was thinking about our conversation I was thinking oh well, maybe the first thing I'm gonna ask you is uh about chord progressions, you know, rather than drums. <laughs> because yeah. I can, because yeah. I can I can I can tell and I can see that you're kind of obsessed um with that that with that. Um, Level of music as well, right? So it's not just as, as you say. It's not just the one thing. It's not just the drums. It's not just the sound. It's it's uh, uh, it's all the details. And and I guess this obsessing about things is also the fun fun of doing it. Yeah. Like,
1: right. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not one of. The, I'm not one of those people that will come off stage and if they get a compliment, they're going to go, "Oh, I was really bad and the sound was terrible," you know. Or, mm. or like when I, 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 used to be one of those people when you would play a track to somebody, so or the, the second verse isn't quite right, and you know, you know, musicians they always get these preemptive strikes, and I'm not like that anymore. I, I'm very gracious if people like something, uh, I believe them, you know. But I. I also, but um, like, cause it's not actually a, a, an unpleasant place to be when you're really kind of trying to do it, do it right, you know, get it. Like, you know, like maybe John McEnroe would scream, you know, he got the ball, you know, missed a shot, you know. It's a bit like that, but there is joy in it, you know. If you, if you, if you, if you uh, get a feel wrong, you go, oh god, I got to do that again. That's that's. Why did I do that? What an idiot! I should have not have done that. Maybe I'll figure that out and I'll do it again. And if you get it right, it's great. I mean, that's the it's a constant conversation you have with yourself. I think in yeah. any kind of performance mm-hmm. where you have to critique yourself at a certain level. And I think I remember, I remember uh, what's that comedian uh, Joan Rivers said a really mm-hmm. interesting thing about comics that she'd met or known that like they would fight and scratch and agonize over every line on the way up through clubs and finally get on the Johnny Carson show or something or get on a, a really big comic, and they would it really, be a really big success. Uh, Then they would go, right, I'm funny. Oh, I'm funny. I'm great, I'm great. And they would stop the process that got them there and they go right back down again. Because you've got to keep that, whatever the process is, you've got to, unless it involves (laughs) copious amounts of drugs or something, you don't want to do things that are unhealthy. But, you know, the process, the agonizing over that lyric, that, that groove, the sound, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, I actually enjoy it. I, I love the idea of analysing it and trying to figure that out and the conversations I have with musicians in the room or technicians, you know, to sort of, no, that's not quite right. We can do better, you know, and, and we find something that's really cool. I, I love all that stuff. It's funny, you mean, the harmony thing, I've got this, um, I'm not distorting on this point, but I've got this thing here. This is my very first copy of, um, this is these, Songs of Praise. Mm -hmm. It's like the Oxford Dictionary of all the hymns and chorales. And this is, when I I was doing A-level music, I started playing the piano when I was 19. Mm -hmm. And I I had an incredible guy I was in a band with, a wonderful musician. He basically sat me down, and you're going to be a proper musician. And within two years, I was at the Royal Academy. He kicked Mm -hmm. my ass. But but the A-level music teacher gave me this book. It said, all the harmony you'll ever need is in this book so look, most of my harmony that i use comes from hymns and chorales so with level 42 when i was at the keyboard writing with mark that's why you hear triads with with our writing with mike it's more you know ninths and extended chords and stuff like that with me and mark it was e minor a b or mm-hmm. a first inversion it's mm-hmm. all it's all first inversions triads you know like mm-hmm. mark would always write like um you know, like McLaughlin, you know, you know, dun, 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 you know that kind of split thing where you do the the root, the fifth, and the third above in that mm. kind of McLaughlin way on the guitar. Yeah. So, uh, as part of the riff, Mark would write like that a lot, like tune tune or uh, melodies that he would write uh, the bass bass part, and I would write these first inversions, try a second inversions, and. It worked really well. And I remember like we got we got a I was maybe on, but we got I remember we got a review when we had that first success in Holland in eighty one. And the review, the headline said the Beatles Vanden Funk. The Beatles of <laughs> Funk. And I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. Not that I ever can I'm not comparing us to, us to the Beatles or anything like that, but mm. it's the idea that what we were doing had a musical clarity because we weren't doing you know, coming out of the seventies, a lot of funk things were you know the Philly sound, a lot of extended chords, and a lot of guitarists doing ninths and you know elevenths and all these sort of big dense chords. We weren't doing that. We were doing basic pop hymn chords. Like if you you know, as you well know, if you listen to Paul Simon, you're listening to you're listening to church music. You're listening to those that that harmony. You know the the, the gospel harmony based on hymn chords. You know, so level forty two were a little bit like that. You know, very very kind of simple structures, but with some. Uh, beautiful movements in it which gave it some flavour and and then you have Wally and Mike coming at it from a different angle and Mike particularly like you listen to a song like Two Solitudes where he has all these clusters you know and you can see this he's got uh, he starts at A minor and there's like there's, there's about six notes all together <laughs> and it's, mm. it's kind of just moving the odd note in the chord and getting those incredible sort of shifts that, that great musician can with just moving a note here and there you know uh, with me, though, I'd be like, it would, be, it would still be D minor, or, you know, a, a D minor over C or something. I'd be very simple.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's been
1: inter- interesting, I still I still come from that place. So the weird thing about being in you know, a playing piano and stuff that I don't write funky. You know, I play the drums. If I was to play drums in a group and other people were writing, I would still play drums like that because I, I like playing, you know, funk drumming, but I don't write like that. I, I don't write funky you know it's very mm-hmm. pastoral it's very kind of um very like hymns you know yes yeah so yeah it's interesting and you Something
0: know like i think I, I really i really think that it was it was uh like one of the strengths of level 42 was the combination of the funk and those uh more pastoral chord sequences and you know those yeah. spoke, those spoke to me a lot and like over the years like from the first album to like the fourth fifth album like there was a there was more and more of that uh interesting harmonic stuff happening and i you know like i i don't know why but you know whenever I, back then i didn't even know what it was called but when i heard like some sort of modulation or is going to some other key or even just for one chord right it it always you know yeah. that that was kind of what i was was after and then in, in combination with the with the groove-based and like actually part parts-focused composition, um, I I thought that was that was just fantastic and you know like like as you say the level the level of detail that you guys put into into the records somehow like when I listened to like uh, Level Forty Two the first album right and like all those details and all, all these arrangement uh, things that you did and like it's um, nowadays you know i can't really um I, I mean obviously you guys did it back then right so the, the the amount of work that was was involved back then i can't imagine how that must have been you know recording on tape and doing the the um, all the keyboard parts and then there's the the glockenspiel right on um, oh, yeah. star child and you know <laughs> stuff oh, like yeah. that i i you know, it's i think it's it's totally awesome and just uh, totally, to me, it really sounds like an absolute labour of love rather than uh, a band trying to make music that other people might like, right?
1: It's yeah, I mean, about- we had mean, no, we had no idea how we were going to connect with people. We were just doing what we could, you know? And we, we just found us, we were an accidental band. We found ourselves with a record deal. Uh, Mark wasn't ever intended to be a singing bass player. When he left the island, he was going to be a drummer. And like we were just jamming together and he was playing bass all the time. It's funny because we went to London, we got to London uh, and that I was at the Royal Academy and that was just up the road from he was working in this place called Macari's in Shaftesbury Avenue in London, which was that, that, at that time that Shaftesbury Avenue and Charing Cross Road was just full of music shops, you know. So mm-hmm. all the musicians were going Drum City, Rose Morris, all these amazing things. But I go down and see him and he's playing bass. And, and and what was weird about our mentality coming off the Isle of White, we we thought that every black musician we would meet in London was going to be like Sandy Clark, you know? <laughs> and so we, we thought we were going to be so inferior. In fact, all our friends were saying on the island, you'll be back in six months. They're too switched on up there for you. And, uh, well, not all our friends, but some negative people, but i would be saying that, you know, when, when, say I mean, it might sound a bit weird, but I don't think, I hope it, it doesn't mean racist overtones. but, but so we, a black musician would come in and pick a bass off the, the wall and, and try to stop. And now and Mark and I were looking at each other right now. We're going to hear the shit because, you know, we're just these silly little white kids from the other white. And then I'd be looking at Mark going, you know, you sound better than this guy. You know, actually, <laughs> it took us a whole winter to kind of figure out that we, we mm. might actually be able to sort of hold our own in London. And uh, mm. Mark was extraordinary. So what was, what was cool about the, the, that band was figuring out that, oh, OK, we've got something to say. OK, people like this you got to be kidding me we got a record deal oh my god but then the thing is what are we going to do cuz none of us we haven't written i had i had not written many i've written some songs with my brother but i haven't written many lyrics mm-hmm. but also what was cool about it was in order to find a way to uh, bring things together we were a band of where each people would bring bits like the Starchild rift Don't, don't don't, don't, don't is wally banaru Mm-hmm. All that stuff. It was all Wally there. So, mm-hmm. But then the second section—that's all—that's a Mark King progression, I mm-hmm. believe. And and then um, and then the the solo section with the Glockenspiel piano solo. Those chords are mine. You know, mm-hmm. so like that's that's my bit, and there's Wally's bit, and there's Mark's bit. And then me and Mike sat down to work on the solo. The, we, and so, I, you know, okay, well, well, we did it together. Right, You play the piano, I'll put the Glock on it, then we'll very speed the track down, until so I have a bell, I'll do the Glock again, so we have mm-hmm. that sort of bell-like sound. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So it was a lot of this, and we were just doing it, and we had no idea that anybody was going to like this stuff. You know? mm-hmm. It just so happened that I think we all naturally had a gift for melody, or, or for things that were, were kind of accessible. We weren't, we were kind of going into a dark area. It was very shiny, it was very easy on the on the ear because we were quite we were quite simplistic musically, you know. I mean, Mark had an amazing ear for melody. He could do he could just sit there and go into the corner and think of these, you know, and he would just kind of hear it and figure it out, you know. And then Wally would come along with these incredible sonic landscapes, and uh, we were so blessed to have him in our corner, because as you know, he, at that time he was doing Grace Jones, Foreigner, Talking Head, Talking Heads, you know, he was, his later bit Robert Palmer, he was an in-demand guy, and particularly the Grace Jones stuff, which was, uh, you know, the early 80s, which was very, very influential records. Hey, so, um, so,
0: how much older is Wally?
1: Than two you? years older than me, he's like, you know, you know I was, wow. I met Wally when I was 22 with, on the end, he was 24. Mm-hmm, so, he okay. was kind of like our, our, our age, and, uh, same age as my brother you know so i think mark's a year younger than me what mike's 18 months you know so we're all kind of little cluster of years mm-hmm. but w- wally was great because he was uh, a very incredibly intelligent um very calm kind of influence on these crazy guys because me and you know we were quite animated me and mark particularly you know we get, get get a bit excitable you know but Wally was this incredibly calming influence and I used to, the, I mean there's so many great things about being, as you know being a professional musician, figuring out that you have something to say, you, you're, you're worthy of being on that stage, all these things, but the, the, the favourite memory I have of those times was being in the studio with Wally and Wally would, Wally spoke to Pipe initially, you know, and, you know and he said, I have an ID, I have an ID and he put his pipe down and he'd start fiddling around with, he you know, had a cool polyphonic a thousand ensemble we had a mini moog and he had a prophet five and we had you know fender roads and piano you know and that was it you know mm. and he would do these incredible landscapes on these instruments and um, and i was just sitting the, i was sitting the control room, and just watching do this stuff he would do one sound and then he'd bring in a prophet thing behind that and then he would kind of detune another synth so it's slightly like of had a tune behind that first sound oh was just absolutely amazing to watch and uh, yeah, it was really cool, and and he, I think he was the reason why we were internationally successful, Wally, because we could have done one in London. I think we we're part of that Brit funk scene at the time, but Wally was the key to the the sound that we had that was able to translate beyond that. You know, mm-hmm. very important to us.
0: So before the 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 first official album, there were a couple of singles already, right? Or what was yeah. There, like, um, because there's one track that I remember of this early tapes record called "Love Meeting Love." Yeah, Do you remember that one? And and particularly on that one, like the the chord sequence again, like was uh, totally astounding to me. Um, and for something like that to be like the first or one of the first things that a band recorded, I I really uh, you know like you really set the course at the very beginning there. I think. And was was Wally uh, involved in in those? early recordings as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, it was all done in one, that track was done in one day, and I I actually had to borrow the money to fly Wally over, because I said, Wally needs to be on this, you know, because I was working, me and Mark had a good relationship with Wally having done the second M album, and I knew Wally could contribute to it, and all Wally Wally, Wally came over with his Korg polyphonic, you know, on a train, or plane, or he came on a plane, and uh, we had one day to do this thing, so we recorded the track, and we could also record the B-side, which is kind of live, you know, which is a live B-side, and and it just worked, and and all of a sudden, we released that track. I think it was we put out three thousand twelve, which is on the small independent label, and the next thing it it's licensed to Polydor, sells eighty thousand copies in the London area, and all, and they and they gave us a five album deal, you know, so okay. And I, had, I remember having to sit Mark down in the pub in Wimbledon, going. He didn't want to do it. He was. Like, I want to be a drummer. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be a singing bass player. So just, <laughs> I said, you could do this. You're really great. And, and basically, it was an opportunity. And we went, all right, let's just sort of see what happens. You know. Mm-hmm. And um, but Wally, I, I I do take credit for forcing Wally into that situation because I knew Wally had this. I'd watched. I worked on two albums with him. I knew what he was capable of. And I didn't know myself fully then, the potential that was going to come from Wally Badarou at that moment. Because if you listen to um, the Grace Jones album, Warm Netherette, and the Nightclubbing, oh my God! If you listen to the, you listen to the keyboards on say a track like Walking in the Rain, mm-hmm. the, key, the the what the synthesizer work on that's a great track because of Sly and Robbie, and it's a brilliant Alex Satkin production. Alex Hatkin's an incredible engineer, but Wally's sonics on that. So that was a year or so later, you know. At that time, we didn't know Wally was going to become that, you know. So it was, he was just playing a cork polyphonic and when he, playing a Prophet five when he could, when he get a hold of one. And I just knew he had something, and I said, I feel feel quite proud that I could, I saw it. Uh, I saw it before any uh, before other people did, you know. go like, oh, that guy has got something. So uh, he came over and did this track, and then all of a sudden, yeah, it was a cycle of fifths, Was not it done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was, yes. <laughs> I think it might have been influenced by I thought it was you by Herbie Hancock how's mm-hmm. uh, that tune that go you know um, just da da. <laughs> you know it's like a, a cycle of fifths as well. so it yeah. may have been in Mark's head that cycle of fifths idea but yeah because when you listen to the other British bands on that scene that we didn't even know existed until that record came out. But they are doing the kind of linear funk thing or two chord thing, trying to emulate a lot of American, you know, funk. And we were just doing a weird little thing on our own. And I, I'm, I, when that came out, we, immediately we started doing these gigs. Uh, because it's a thousand, you know, 3,000 people at the Amherst Ballet with all the other bands, you know, and we, all, we just had an audience there ready to go. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a straight, you know, right place, right time moment, you know. Um, and then I think another single, we did the album, uh, which became The Early Tapes. And then we put out another single called Wings of Love. And mm-hmm. then that album got shelved because we got signed to Polydor and then we did Level 42. So The Early Tapes came out after the first Level 42 album mm-hmm. because uh, Polydor bought it off uh, Elite Records and said, no, we we don't want you to put it out, we'll buy it and we'll put it out as The Early Tapes, you know? But, yeah, so the first album we did came out after the the first Polydor album.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It was such a great period. I mean, Wally sent me a photograph because I was, I was convinced that Wally had used uh, Prophet 5 on Turn It On, which is the first track on the first official Polydor album. Mm. But... Ba, 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 you know. I said, that's a Prophet 5, Wally. He said, no, it's a Korg polyphonic. I said, you can't get a sound like that in a Korg polyphonic. And then he sent me a picture of the studio at Chippy Norton with the Korg polyphonic in the corner. And you actually look at the studio at Chippy Norton, the drums are in the corner behind a couple of those screens, you know, and there's the keyboard over there and Mark's in the corner with, with the bass out. There's no very little separation in that tiny little studio in Chippy Norton, but that sound came out of that desk the tried the series B desk and mm-hmm. and the room. And of course, it was late 70s. Well, it was, this was 81 when we did that, but you're coming through the seventies with tried desks and things like that. And it's all, in, it's all in the desk and all, all in the, uh, uh, and the, and the outboard, you know, the Fairchilds, whatever they were using, you know, yeah. it's quite some, I'm sure if you heard the drums in that room, you go bloody how they sound dead as hell, you know, but yeah, it was, and we so I think when we, when we tracked it, say, turn it on was tracked with me, Mike, Mark and Wally, um, and my brother did the guitar afterwards. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. But it's kind of it was wild to look. actually. Wild, it was a tiny room we did it. It's amazing, you know.
0: So, did Wally ever play live with you guys?
1: No, it's a source of much regret. I mean, I, I, we should have done some kind of special gigs with him. Mm-hmm. But he he was a, a session guy. He was writing and composing music. He wasn't into the live thing. You know, he was. He got he. You know, he loved making contributions to recordings. That's where he lived, in the yeah. studio. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to be, he, he wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been good for him to be on the road. It was, the repetition of touring was not, not his mindset, you know. Mm-hmm. So he sent us out to do the, all the legwork while well, he just, you know, <laughs> wrote, he wrote some tunes and took the royalties and went off to do Grace change you know. No, it's great. It was it was actually a lovely thing, you know. And I I, I think when we did the, later on when we did these big gigs like Wembley Arena and places like the Olympia Hall, uh, the Olympia in Paris, and mm-hmm. I, I would have I would have loved it if we could have done some special moments with him because uh you know he, he yeah it would have been great. He would have, lo- he would have loved it too, I think. But yeah, we, we did it didn't come into our minds really.
0: hmm hmm Wow, so in the first few years you were just a quartet, right? And then later on you had more musicians on stage
1: yeah we had a percussionist for the first period of time for the first three years i think oh, okay uh oh the first year not the second year but we, i wish we'd uh, have Leroy, a great guy great percussionist great conga mm-hmm. player man bloody hell i mm-hmm. wish we could have kept him actually because I, I do like percussion mm-hmm. you know but with later on we had a sax player and we had a, a lovely backing singer to augment the vocals with with us Annie. Annie. So we, we, we became a six piece, you know, and also we started using sequences later, which kind of did my head into it to some extent. Yeah. yeah. I'm, quite, I'm quite into technology, but not the way we were using it. It was very basic. Talking about 1987, it's very basic technology. No, no feel to it. You know, it's kind of really quite brutal. Click, 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 gang, 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 It's kind of like, oh my God. It really felt like a, like kind of, you you're, you don't have, a, you don't have any controller or a say anymore, you know, but, I mean nowadays technology is much more organic.
0: Did did you also have to run the uh the click track? Were you the guy to start it and stuff or
1: I used to did, no my Mike did. Yeah, Mike I had did. the sequences. And uh I I I we did I used a Lindrum on one track, a whirl machine, mm-hmm. uh a Lindrum part which is on the record actually, which Wally is Wally's part, but I, I would have to start that with my foot. I mean, it's incredible when you think about how temperamental those things were, you know, those you you know, buttons, but it never, it it never, it never went wrong, you know, but, 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 you know, (laughs) and Mike, 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 uh, a couple of tunes, you might have um, a sequencer augmenting the bass, but when it got to the point of, of keyboard parts and sequences all flying around off a sequencer and one of the best keyboard players in England, just sort of clapping his hands. I thought there's something not right about this, you know, and that was kind of the end. That was the end for me. It was, it was a, i have a theory about why why we went that way but i i, I just feel like um we didn't need to do it and having some sequences is cool but we we could we could re- we were really locked at that point we didn't need it you know we didn't we we may have needed an augmenting keyboard player but we didn't need to have a sequencer doing that but yeah. i mean people use sequences all the time now it's not a problem but at the time it sort of freaked me out but
0: I, I think in, in hindsight, it's, it's true what you say, but I also can kind of uh, um, see why back then that, that sound in the mid-80s, right? Like with, uh, yeah. it's, it sort of became something that people use as a reference. And then like, like the idea to bring that onto the stage was, I think it is wrong. But back then, maybe it was something that just was so attractive for whatever reason. Um, and you know, better than I, but you know, my, my friend Pat Masolotto, he, he told me a lot of stories about, uh, cause he was also uh, a guy who very early on embraced electronic, um, gadgets, yeah. let's say in the studio, and then also brought that on station. he said like, it was an absolute nightmare with, with Mr. Mr. He, he was running all that stuff. And as you say, like the, the Lindrum, um, probably doesn't come in at the right time and then you know like all these these things that could go wrong back then. But the cool thing is like playing with Pat now. So if, if you're interested in that, like the setup that he has is amazing now because he has just like this SPD uh, pad where he has the clicks for the tracks as you play yeah. and he, he can bring them in and out at any time. That's pretty amazing. Like so he really acts as an as an orchestrator, not just of the the, the actual sounds that you hear but also yeah. of of the guides that he gives us sometimes, right? So if we kind of like speed up our energy, he throws in the click for just one bar, you know, and stuff like that. It's it's pretty amazing what can be done nowadays, especially with the, you know, the personal, the in-ear monitoring and like you have your own mixer in front of you and stuff like that. It's it's pretty amazing, I have to say.
1: What would that be like? Because obviously we didn't have in-ear monitoring, so my ears obviously suffered. Great mm-hmm. because of the volume, yeah. but the thing is, I I something about in ears. It feels a little bit like you're you're not in the room, not in the space. I, I know why. It's probably much better for your ears, but also you get a much better overall control of the sound. But something about that well, it doesn't make. Yeah, yeah, I,
0: I I know I know what you mean, but I have to say, <laughs> for me, it's it's uh, it's been an absolute relief to be able to do that and. Like the, the in- ears that I have like they are in they are not really uh, super, how do you say dead you know like the, I can yeah. I can still hear the room a little bit and and playing with Pat was extremely loud, right So I still get the physical sensation. And somehow like at the beginning I, when I was when we were going to in ears I thought that maybe my instrument would kind of like suffer because there wouldn't be like enough feedback. Uh, from the monitor speakers to the guitar so less sustain and you know a, a more a, a deader instrument but that was actually not the case like the instrument really also picks up the the sound from the room and the pa actually and at least my instrument does and uh, so i have to say it's it's been it's been great and like I, I did a tour with um, uh, a guy called devin Townsend um, a couple of years ago and it was a 10 piece band. And there were no click tracks, no no backing tracks involved at all. But we had like the these amazing um, uh, monitor engineers, for in-ears, and like it was one of the best bands ever. Uh, and well, and, and tours like it was incredible. So I, I think like having the the mindset of the let's say of the seventies and eighty 80s, early eighties 80s, um, playing without click tracks and having the fantastic sound in your ear that's kind of like. Um, I have to say I really enjoyed it. You know, and I. I
1: well, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you would you, you, would, you, would, you know, if we were touring now, we would, we would be doing that. I mean, I, I, I did actually, I did a a thing at the National Theatre about four years ago, and that was all. You know, in ear monitoring, you had to because of the mm-hmm. the theatre is like that, isn't it? You had to. It's, the, the, the sound people, there was a girl do the sound, it's absolute genius, you know, like punching in all the dialogue, you know. And uh, <laughs> of course, so that was interesting, it worked really well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I quite like, I mean, my, my ears really suffered because of the volume, and I have tinnitus now. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I did quite like the rock and roll because Level 42 were, were two bands, really. They were a recording band and they were a live band. And live, it was a completely different situation. I mean, with the with the sequences, it did sort of tame us a little bit. It calmed us, so we you know our, our tempos were really solid. But with the live, our tempos would be quite a bit above the record sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't think we were, we were speeding up too much. We certainly weren't dragging, but we we may have sped up a little bit. But, but it was kind of you know it would be a lot faster because of the adrenaline. But with the sequences, that uh, that doesn't happen. But it was uh, it was kind of a very very energetic band, very powerful, and, and lots of blood on the skins and blisters and. <laughs> it felt great, but it was a very different experience in the studio. It was much more, well, what are we doing? What are we doing? Have you got a riff, let's try and write, you know, was actually making music for the first time. And uh, uh, very it's a very different kind of energy.
0: You know, what is um, interesting to me, like when I um, recall the Level 42 albums, um, Up Until You Left, um, The Pursuit of Accidents is sort of like, it hasn't. It was almost not part of the canon for me for a long time. For some reason, I don't know why that was. Probably because I I got to know it last or something. I don't know. Um, but do you feel that it's kind of like a, a special one in a way, like in a good or in a bad way?
1: I think, I think there's some of our. I think we did lose. We had this, We had a problem, a second album syndrome, and I think, yeah. I think. There's a couple of tracks, like there's a track called uh, also that uh, there's a couple of tracks that are very there's a couple of really bad songs on the album. I mean I think Are You Hearing What I Hear is, is a track which was good live. We didn't record it well at all. It's really weak on the record. It's it's a really weak rhythm track compared to how tight we were at other times. It was a, it was very rushed and you know, there's what's a the song on side two? Um da da-da-da, da 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 da. What's that song? I don't know what the song is uh, that was just that was horrendous you know like here's a riff here's a thing and there's another there's a B section. here's a chorus chorus is mine it's awful chords uh, yeah so those that we we kind of we didn't do so well There were I think there's two or three really cool tracks there's a pursuit of accidents is from it's great and um, shapeshifter one or two other things there's some ice water falling I love yeah. It was just kind of a wild, my brother doing a Susie and the Banshees guitar part, you know. <laughs> um, and then the Chinese Way, which is a terrible lyric, but a cool rhythm track. But uh, yeah, we, we it was a bit of a hit and miss record, that one. And then we then we had the the experience with the third one, you know, where we were organized on the third album. The first album, we, we put everything we had into that record. So all these ideas came to bear. And most of those tracks stand up, I think. You know, I think the second album is a little bit problematic. You know, they call it the second album syndrome, and mm-hmm. I think we had that. You know, I think we had that a little bit. You know, to be honest.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I think True Colors was was the album where the sound of the band sort of completely changed somehow, right? Yeah. And it was was kind of like very uh, even like still, I think, kind of futuristic sounding for some way or another, and I wouldn't even know why. You know, there is there was something very uh, strange about it, but I still love it. You know, but
1: yeah, it got to uh, a little. I mean, the band were having a little bit of a problem at the time, uh, and we worked with Ken Scott, which was my idea actually to work with Ken, but it Ken took the sound from the shininess of the Earth, Earthwind and Fire guys, Larry everdeen to mm-hmm. the Ken sound, which is a little bit darker, Fairchild compressors, and you know, kind of very earthy which is great. And, and perhaps, I mean, I don't know about Hot Water as a song, you know, maybe the lyrics or whatever, but as a track, it's probably the closest we've, we've ever come on record to, you know, the, I'm talking about the remix to capturing what we were like live, you know, it's like really powerful, you know. But uh, I love that album, you know, I mean, I kind of got a bit stick from the label because of the lyrics on that album because let's talk about the Bauhaus and and, all, and and sort of like reading, reading Arthur Kessler and, Tom Wolfe and you know, Carl Jung and, and I was getting a little bit ahead of myself I think and the band you know, I think the label wanted like Earth with the Fire let's groove tonight you know like they kind of got that with some of the tunes on Sending the light you know obviously the sun goes down uh, I, but the thing was a lot of that music you hear like, a song like True Believers that's not my music that's Mark's that's all Mark you know so mm-hmm. I can't be you can't lay the blame at my door for that not being a commercial track because it was it's just it's just what we were doing at the time. There's some really beautiful things on it. There's a track called "Hours by the Window," which yeah, I think yeah, is one of the best. I love that track. Um, and there were there were one or two there were one or two instances where I wasn't involved in the music and I just wrote the lyrics, and that was one of them. I mean, I remember that like, the other one was a physical presence on "World Machine," where I just gave Mark a set of lyrics and he put it to music, which I think is a great track. But uh, I remember Mark coming to rehearsals one day and he had that melody and he may have made it up on the spot you know I have a feeling he might just improvise the damn thing but it sounded so beautiful and I was reading Dialogue with Death by Arthur Kessler so I was going to go there with that song you know and that's just amazing I wish we'd have done it live
0: so who who wrote uh, Floating Life? actually
1: that that melody the verse the, the the verse and chords of mine, actually. Da, 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 da. Yeah, and then I yeah wrote the song. I remember I got like a, I was going through Covent Garden and I saw this book in you know, a bookshop. this Chinese book. is called A Floating Life. It's all about these China Chinese proverbs, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, that's what I'm living. I'm living a floating life. But then, I, but then I turned it into a, a, an idea of somebody who was kind of brought back down to earth by somebody else's corruption. And you know, about it being ruined, you know, by somebody else's um devious and maniacal behavior. So I turned it into a kind of like weird, devious song, but actually, this, mm-hmm. the idea came from some beautiful Chinese proverb, you know. But yeah, it's kind of like one of my bits. And Mark came up with the chorus, mm-hmm. so that was that was the nature of things at the time, uh, you know. I,
0: I have to tell you, I really love that song and love the lyrics. And I for me, it was always uh, about the life of a musician on the road, that's how I interpreted yeah. those lyrics and, and was pretty powerful and sort of educational also um you know as a young man uh having to or wanting to uh get into music and uh i don't know
1: i think i mean for me like there was i was probably 26 when we did that i think so like mm-hmm. I, I i was i had a couple of situations where I'd felt, i felt i felt taken in by people you know like I relationships personal relationships or friendships, you know, and I felt betrayed a little bit, like, and so they're kind of quite bitter. in In your hands as a photograph, mm-hmm. and she, she turns to laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of like a moment where you're, where you're, mm-hmm. like maybe somebody's going to blackmail you in the press, you know, with the photograph or something. You know I mean? something, I don't know, something dark going on, and I felt a bit angry, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: because like I, I did like that. And I kind of like. I was trying to trying to explore how to write different kinds of songs, really, like a thinking in a cinematic way, like like you, you can imagine a scene, you know, between two mm-hmm. people. And up, mm-hmm. what I love about that is that you write that scene, but other people that hear it are gonna they're gonna picture another scene, which is the great thing about this whole process. I think you you you've, you fill in your own room, you fill in your own beach, you fill in your own sky. You know, when you listen to lyrics, don't you? I mean, I'm yeah, sure yeah. when. Pe- where Peter Gabriel could have thought of Mercy Street and when he envisions those lyrics based on that poetry, um, he, he, uh, he, he, like, let's take the boat out. When he sangs that he sings that line, he's he, he's probably imagining a stretch of water that he's familiar with. When I when I when I hear that line, I, I have my own boat in my own my own sea, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the great thing about this process, isn't it? You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's not just for it's not just for the lyrics; it's for the music itself as well. Like and, yeah, yeah. you know, and and that's why I think you know compromising with one's music is kind of like, or even thinking about what people will think about the music is absolutely pointless. And for yeah. me, absolutely
1: yeah. pointless. Yeah, but so we can have explanations. It sometimes it is interesting to. I mean, I love all that stuff about. Uh, filmmakers talk discussing a scene. Or, I, I love to hear musicians discuss their motivations, mm. uh, but there also comes to comes to a point where do you really want to know what brushes Picasso used to paint that picture? I mean, I mean, how, how detailed do you want to get? So it is interesting the motivation, but I don't need to know all the technical, uh, and I certainly don't want to hear remixes of stuff. I mean, I, I really, I, I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I don't really want to hear a remix of you know a twenty twenty first century remix of that i don't i'm not interested you know so it's kind of i i there's a point where i kind of go i i really want to have hang on to what the artist at the time env- envisions like i don't want to hear a remaster of hoagie carmichael's stardust you know i don't mm-hmm. want i don't want to i don't want to go back and hear sergeant pepper uh yeah. remaster you know what i mean i i i love the fact that artwork has a time and a place and art, art has a time and a place, and it captures that time and a place. I mean, in the terms of music, you're capturing with the 1940s recording. You're capturing the the kind of where it was recorded, the wires, the valves, and and that's the experience. And so why do you want to change that with a digital interpretation? I just, I just think there's a cultural aspect to the whole thing, and uh, uh, you're in a certain moment. And even like a band, uh, uh Level 42 are one of the like, Level 42 on the level of a Bowie or a you know, a, you know. The, the, you know these incredible like the Beatles or whatever but it's still art you know uh, everything that you create we, when you're in that headspace it, it, it is art you know because we were we were operating artistically and this is where we went had problems with the label because we were we were wanted to talk anti-war songs like I Want Eyes or Ours uh, By The Window or maybe uh, anti-disinformation songs like Kansas City Milk we talking about the lies were told by the media. You know? The label didn't want us to do that. They wanted it, let's groove tonight, baby. Yeah, let's get down. Mm-hmm. They wanted us to be a British earth and fire, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we were getting, I was, I was getting particularly a lot of stick from the label for doing that. But I didn't give a shit, you know, because I, I was I was saying to them, look, you know, a song like Kansas, a riff like Kansas City Melbourne is not going to lend itself to you saying, let's get down tonight. It's not, it's darker than that, you know. And same with true believers, it's darker than that. And obviously, the chart has begun. I mean, that's not going to be like, come on, everybody, let's have a guitar. It's a heavy track. It's like, you know, it's about something else. You know? And I and I I think that was, you know, I think bands like should have a dark period. You know, they should have their like, you know, Brits, Britney before he did like Dancing in the Dark, he went and did Nebraska. You know, he had this kind of, you know, on, recorded on the cassette, and this very, you know, he was struggling at the end of his twenties. He was coming to terms with. Uh, all sorts of changes and he went and had this very kind of dark album, which I love, you know, but he, he went to this place and then he came back with a succession of very, very powerful commercially successful albums, you know, but I think it's good for artists to have a curve, you know, it's why I love Radiohead so much. I mean, Radiohead are one of my favourite bands of all time because they do, uh, they go through the creep thing and they do plastic trees and they do all these very accessible songs, even though it's still really interesting. And then they do OK Computer, which has one of the greatest records of all time, I think. One of the mm-hmm. best recordings of all time, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, uh, one of my favourite albums. And then they go and do Kid A for crying out loud, you know. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just rip up that blueprint and go off and do something else. I admire mm-hmm. that so much. Mm-hmm. I, 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 they have such bravery, because, you know, when, when you have a, an album like OK Computer, you know that the label's going, can we have a few more of those guys? Can we have a few more you've Hit upon something here like number one in America and number one in England. You know, we want we want another one of those, please. And they went just no, we're going to do this. So you listen to what's the first track on Kid A? What's that called? Um, Christ, yeah, it's but it's just that when the label heard that, I'm sure they freaked out. <laughs> but I, I love them so much. It's, an,
0: it's such an amazing album, Kid A. unbelievable, oh God. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Bowie
1: did the same thing. Burry would get to Ziggy Stardust and then he would I'm quitting. And that's enough for Ziggy Stardust. And he goes and does. And then within two years he's doing Station to Station, you know, fame and fame with John Lennon and going to Funk and mm-hmm. Blue Eyed Soul. And then he's doing Bowie the trilogy, you know, Berlin mm-hmm. Trilogy. What an artist that is. Because the label all the time the label are going. No, this is really good. Do more Ziggy, more Ziggy, you know. But no, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go over here now, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're into something quite serious when you have somebody that has that kind of level of courage, you
0: know. You know, sounds to me like everybody in in your band back then really loved music, right? And just loved yeah. making music just for the sake of music, right? In initially, or, yeah. yeah, literally, yeah. And, and what 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 happened then? Like, what what about like running in the family, for example?
1: I think the, the the real step to that thing is World Machine because World Machine. I remember going around to everybody's house at, at the end of '84, and we got a bit of stick from the label because uh, although we we had a gold record on our third album, then we had a silver record on the fourth album. So obviously commercially, we'd taken a step back in the label's eyes. And so, what was the last album of, of the deal? Let's go. Let's. We need to be a bit more proactive. So why don't we produce ourselves with a great engineer? And we can do it, Wally, the band. And uh, we found this in Julia Mendelsohn, this absolute genius engineer. But we then decided to write all the material before, because a lot of True Colours was written in the studio. You know, we, we did it uh, kind of bit, dot, taking huge risks, you know. But we wrote all these songs over that winter, 84 into 85. And then we went to the studio. And so we, we, record, we, we were going to do it in a different way, record to click and uh but i think the writing was as organic as it ever was like something like something about you which became the breakthrough single was written just like in a normal way me and mike had an idea and then mm. mark and wally had a verse and, my, and then mark, wally reharmonized the intro and my brother finished the lyrics and it was like it was just but it just so, so happened to be a kind of really accessible idea but it was written in that normal organic way mm. When we, you know and that became a huge hit, so that all changed the whole landscape for us. But there were other tracks, like World Machine or A Physical Presence, or a track like Good, A Good Man in the Storm, which I really loved. Me and Mark wrote that together, one of my favourite tracks, things we ever did. And it had a lot of soulfulness and, I and, think, uh, artistic integrity. But when it came, once something about you became massive, then uh, the next thing was to do Lessons in Love. And that was kind of the formula, you know, with my brother's guitar, and it's kind of based along the lines of something about you. And then it became a little more clinical, a lot more, a lot more into the sequences of machines. Uh, not that we didn't use sequences on the recording, but we had to do, use sequences to, to replicate it live, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it was, that was the problem. Actually, actually, there was only major sequences on one track on that album, I believe, which is uh, To Be With You Again. Uh, most of it was actually done, uh, like, say, the keyboards on Children's Say. That was all played. But mm-hmm. then, in order to do it live, you have to have extra keyboard parts. That's when we use the you know. But then it became a bit more formulaic, and uh, it, I think it was soulless. You know, mm-hmm. we—I mm-hmm. put my heart and soul into it, but it was nothing like what had happened before because the the organic success of World Machine happened just because. We were writing in a different way. We got, we got better at writing songs, and we were more organized. And we all, each as individual musicians, we all had our shit together. I really had my drum sound together. My brother had his guitar sound together. Everybody had their thing. And all of a sudden, it just came together, you know? And it didn't require too much thought. But when we did, when we, um, did Running the Family, we, we, wrote, we wrote the track Running the Family as a single. We mm-hmm. wanted to, we want you know lessons that was written as a single. Could Children Say was written as a track and it became a single. And Children Children Say was the last time that me and Mark wrote together like mm-hmm. that. We you know the, those are my chords in the verse. That's his riff, and then his chords are the chorus. I think Mike wrote the top line for the chorus, and I wrote the lyrics. You know? there was mm-hmm. now that kind of that, that the two of us together uh, was for the last time. You know, um, so running the family was a much more clinical affair. Mm-hmm. and also mm-hmm. the absurdity was like we'd written Lessons in Love early in the year I think we wrote the backing track to Ch- Children's Say" in January that year and then we were we touring all the way up to the summer we did Glastonbury in June then we had one week to do the f- to finish the writing and then mm-hmm. we went to the studio for six weeks and came out and we're back on the road again so we mm-hmm. had the six, right. a week to record and, and, and six weeks to, a week to write and the six weeks to record the most important album in our career and then we go back on the road with no chance to redo anything. It's that the management were off their heads, and we were we were taking enormous risks. I think if we'd have had a chance, we probably would have gone back and done more tracks. To, I, I didn't like to be with you again. I hated Fashion Viva. It was the worst, the worst thing. I I mean, it's it's horrible to say that. It sounds really spoiled to be in your own band playing huge gigs, and you're you're moaning about having to do a track. But it was mm. a horror show for me every night to have to start the set with that bloody track, you know, because it was all sequences. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, so it became a problem and and I knew my time was over then, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't me. I, I really bridled this kind of wall of sound, you know, hang on, I need some space. I mean, you know, you listen to a track like uh, uh, a physical presence of Mm. true colors, there's loads of space in that track. It's just open and it's, you know, here's the keyboard part. It's like it sounds like a band, doesn't it? Like, here's the bass part. Here's my brother's beautiful guitar. Here's the drums, and here's the keyboard part, and there's some vocals. And it sounds like a four-piece band with Wally doing his thing. Whereas if you listen to uh, something like "To Be With You Again," it sounds like a there's a whole freaking you know electronic ensemble going on. It's nothing mm-hmm. to do with nothing mm-hmm. to do with these guys anymore. And I think we lost our way with that a little bit.
0: So do do you remember how that happened? Like like who who made those choices to make those arrangements in the studio with the sequences? Or did that just happen because the technology was there?
1: Well, the technology, we started to use sequences on the road of, after World Machine. So mm-hmm. we had like, uh, in order to do something about you live, you had like, there's a couple of keyboard parts uh, that Wally did um, that we had to have live as what well. Mike couldn't do, so that was running a click and that. And so because we started using sequences, they became available, they then marked. Like I think, I don't, I can't remember all the tracks actually. I think, again, a track, like say the ballad, it's over, which is a really beautiful melody of marks All those keyboards are Wally playing it, you know, but, in all, but then in order to do it live. I think the only track that was heavily secrets in the studio was uh, To Be With You Again. I think maybe the track called Sleepwalkers had this sequence on it. Mm-hmm. But when, but but it was like brutal, you know. And, oh no, Fashion Fever had a sequence on it, you know. So brutal secrecy. So Mark went off and wrote these things and he was putting everything into it. And it was almost like pushing the other musicians out of the way. You know, it was like, like, I know what the shit is and I know how to play that keyboard part. And, and I'm just going, well, hang on, why do you let Mike come up with something, you know? But anyway, mm-hmm. it was, it was fine. We, we were pushed for time and I just knew I couldn't do that again. You know, I, 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 I could see that was going to be more of that. We were, we, we, at that point, you know, at the end of that year, of running, you know, when we were promoting in the Family," we've been touring for three years non-stop, with yeah. absolutely no break. And the band was a band was at the breaking point, literally. Mm-hmm. I was I ended up in hospital actually. My brother ended up in hospital. We were t- we was exhausted, and and then I could see another two or three years of this because certain people in the band wanted to have a million quid in the bank, you know. So it was like yeah. it became very very financially driven, and uh, I just the soul left it for me and that's fine and I, I have I have related this story recently because I've been thinking about it a lot that I remember talking to Ken Scott about this like because I was I always thought there was more that we could have done and we had lost our way like that but he mm-hmm. was saying you know he, remember he had a conversation with Ken and Ken's worked with so many incredible people and so many musicians and he said, "Listen, I've I've worked with so many bands and artists that never even made the first album, or maybe made one record, and then mm-hmm. it imploded. And mm-hmm. you guys did seven studio albums, a live album, and you you know you had this time, and that was my entire 20s, level 42 or 22 to 30. And, you know, you did all right, you know. And I think that's the way to look at it. Like uh, we had a finite amount of time that we could be together, and we did a certain amount in that period. And that's and I think there's a actually there's quite a bit of integrity in that, you know." And I think there's a lot of integrity, in me and my brother going, "No, that's that's enough for us. We we we're not going to have. Yeah, we, we could be we could we would have been millionaires if we stayed, but we said, uh, you know, I think we've done enough. And uh, I think I think I, what I what I love about musicians, is we talked about your radio head, I love people that are honest and have integrity, and I think you need to live your life by that. And sometimes there are consequences because you might not make as much money, but the reality is. The, if you don't live your life in that kind of honest way that it's just, it's your soul, you know and I think, I think the moment that really, really freaked me out with Love 42, I don't want to go on about it but there was a moment where we were about to go on the road uh, we were about to do the promotion and, and we had to go to this the studio um, what, what were we doing? and we had, to, we had to do a photo shoot for the album and we are given all this Levi clothes to wear I had no idea this was going on And Mm -hmm. what's this? We're all wearing Levi's. And the next thing I know, and I I didn't know this was happening actually until it happened. On the album cover, you have like level 42 and Levi's on our fucking album cover. You know, (laughs) that was the moment that was the big sellout for me. Mm -hmm. Um, There was Mm -hmm. absolutely no need to do it. We were already, we were making loads of money. We were selling out venues like Wembley Arena. We'd done four nights. We were going to do eight nights. And like, um, then we have to have a, a, a logo on our record. It's the yeah, ultimate horrible. sellout, horrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that—that's the moment where I, I i knew that my time was done. It was like, and um, maybe it was more the management that we had, but it was still something we should never have allowed. Because what you know, how, how dare we do that to our fans? Get to a place where we work our asses off and then sell out like that? It's not acceptable. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why I always love you too. I, I'm not a massive fan of Bono's opinions on things sometimes, but. What I love about you too is they've always had that integrity. When they had that manager, Paul McGuinness, they never allowed any corporate black branding. I know they did that thing with Apple later, which was mm-hmm. a bit of a nightmare, really, but mm-hmm. they never they never let like, this tour by Coca-Cola or, or like with the Rolling Stones that they have Volkswagen, you know, I, mm-hmm. or, or Mike Jackson with Pepsi Cola or something. I think it's really important that... Um, musicians if they get they have success if they remember what it was like to be 16 and 17 and really believing in something and how that can really help form your identity as a human being where you, you follow artists that you really believe they mean it and you you, you you invest your time with them and you develop with them and, and you, you develop world views through music and art and things like that and then just to, to learn that it's all just been a money making exercise not not cool you know
0: no, but I mean, incredible integrity on your end there, really. Uh, to uh, also to to realize that what was going on, um, you know, I, I spoke um, to Richard Barbieri a few weeks ago, um, and and he he told me horror stories about that time, like things he had to go through with management and stuff, and uh, so. Um, so let me just, you know, like ask this question. So how did, how did things turn out for you when you left the band? So what, what happened?
1: I had to recover. I took a long time to recover because I, I ended up having agreed to leave. I then went back on the road to North America to finish the tour and I ended up, something was wrong, you know, like I was probably having too good a time, but also my central nervous system just collapsed. And my brother not being there, my brother didn't go back on the road. Something about that put me in a very strange headspace. So I started having panic attacks, and
0: mm-hmm. then I
1: started having panic attacks on stage. So mm-hmm. of course, then you then you think every time you're going to walk out, you know, it's a, it just becomes a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. The last gig I did was a kind of quite a big club in Dallas in October '87, and I had a panic attack walking out, and I was hyperventilating all the way through the gig. For two hours and then you know, yeah. and, and I just I got on a plane the next day and went home to see my doctor to London we had a day off he took one look at me and stuck me in hospital for two weeks he put me on drugs on a sleep cure you know mm-hmm. I was done you know I was completely mm-hmm. done and I think my body was trying to get me out of there my body was saying you shouldn't be get the hell out you know
0: mm-hmm. so yeah.
1: because of that it did a lot of damage of course you know then it's really hard to go back on the stage when you you have the memory of that so it took me two years to get back on the stage and that was with Nigel Kennedy at the Dominion theatre. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I started to do things and, and then I had kids and uh, I was doing projects and I moved to the West country and I had, I did actually have a few more mental health problems at the end of the nineties. So it was quite a tricky time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of, uh, kind of weird how life gets in the way. I mean, I, I was really, I had a steam around 2004, 2005, and then it transpired that my, I needed to look after my kids. I had my I was a single parent for five years from two thousand five two thousand and ten mm-hmm. and that took you know that that just stopped everything and I came back to London. I think I put water Tire out in two thousand and nine without any promotion I just put it out you know and came back to London and mm-hmm. started again and started writing and things like that so it's just the arc of life what what's interesting about the new work is that if people like it enough if people are interested enough, I've got so many freaking tunes knocking around because I'll be writing, you know, even in lockdown, you know, writing Mm -hmm. like an idiot. So there's lots, lots of music to come if we can get enough traction and find an audience. Mm
0: -hmm. And,
1: and also, you know, that means a lot of different things have to fall into place, but uh, all you can do is the best you can do, isn't it? So yeah, it's been an interesting journey, I have to say. So if you, if you want to talk about depression and anxiety, I'm a bit of an expert in those two fields, and uh, you know, to come have come through a lot of those things is one of the greatest achievements of my life. I think because I, I had to mm-hmm. I had to work a lot of stuff out. You know, there was a period of time when I, I couldn't function in any way, shape, or form, let alone uh, as a musician. It's a shame really to leave the band and have those problems because I could have just got got on with it and played drums and lost it. People, I would have, I, I would, I, I would have liked that. You know. Uh, one of the things about you know you, i know that you played with countless musicians One one of the things that was great about being in a band was developing a thing within a band but also one of the things that's negative about that is that you don't have the opportunity to explore mm-hmm. other things And we were very much like you had to be in for two you can't do it, no side projects you can't go and do a session you know mm-hmm. I, I i would i would like to have had more experience with other musicians at that time i think but uh, at least now, I have I, I, the last sort of 15 years, so I, I have that experience. You know, I work in Italy, I go to Germany, and I, 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 well, I want to go to Vienna at some point. I, mean, I love that city, so you know, I'm lucky now to, to be doing different things. Mm.
0: Yeah, you, you know, it's uh, would you agree that you know, if you get into a situation like you were in with the band and the success and like all the positives of that, um, there inevitably there's a price to pay somehow and you really you really only realize uh what that price is when you stop right
1: yeah 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 Yeah.
0: you know that that's that's one of the reasons why i have to say i'm a little concerned um you know about you know all those touring musicians uh that i know and also those that i don't know that have to be home now like and for over a year now it's 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 crazy I really, it's, I think it's really, it's really intense. And I really I, really, intense, really, yeah. I, I really, I really hope that, um, you know, most people will come back, you know, will return from this, from this state.
1: Well, we all know what's going on with theatres. My daughter works for Dance Rombert, which is a very, very important uh, you know, dance company. And she's technical manager for Dance Rombert. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, she, she's lucky because she's, she had that job She got employed about a year before the pandemic, so she has an actual job. But of course, most people in that world, as you know, are obviously self employed. It's Mm -hmm. absolutely devastating. All the dancers, all the technicians, you know, it's absolutely, you know, the National Theatre in in the South Bank had to shed 700 jobs, you know. So it's kind of, oh, God. You just hope that those spaces will exist. Uh, And I know that my friends in Vienna uh, last summer, there were 800 outdoor shows paid for by the government. Mm. To employ all the musicians, it was free to the public. But, you know, that kind of attitude doesn't exist here. You know, they're, they're, they're ignorant people. They're, they're philistines that run the government. And mm. they don't give a shit about the art. You know, they don't care about the arts. And they've slashed arts funding, they've slashed arts education in school. So they don't care, give a shit about dances. I remember there was a, a, there was a talk of, there was a very high level conversation with Downing Street Uh, maybe about a year ago or maybe in May of last year with Sam Mendes, um, all these kind of really high-flying cultural figures in in the UK with Downing Street. And apparently Dominic Cummings, who was like Boris Johnson's advisor at the time, uh, shouted at Sam Mendes uh, at one point when they're talking about the the arts. He said, the effing ballerinas can get to the back of the effing queue, you know, Mm -hmm. like as if it's the least of our worries. Mm-hmm. So these people don't understand the dynamic yeah. of art in this culture just on a purely economic level what art does you have like Sadler's Wells in London you know you have a ballerina on that stage then you have the, the taxi drivers dropping people off at the venue you have the food and drink being provided to the people working the venue the whole microcosm economic microcosm that exists around art at mm-hmm. a venue or a club or a space or a theatre or a cinema it's just like they don't get it you know and like that if you just look at it purely in economic terms, like I think the arts, the creative sector in the UK brings over hundred billion a year to the economy. What it did, you know, and yet they're, they're going on about fish the whole time, you know, fishing. Mm. Like, yeah, we'll get, get, we'll leave the EU so we can get our fishing rights back. Get, you know, it's unbelievable mm. where we're at, you know? Mm. So yeah. uh, unfortunately we're in a situation where the people in power don't understand the importance of, of the cultural sector in this country. It's, it's, mm. it's terrifying.
0: You know like the, the whole brexit mentality i i absolutely personally i don't get it but i mean the the reason for it may be really bad education for decades right like that people don't really see the value in 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 freedom let's say or in in freedom to to move and in being united with other people right and uh I, I find it, I find it shocking. You know, I was, I was actually personally hurt. You know, as a German, that, uh, you know, that when Brexit was suggested, even, you know, I was, I, I, I still can't believe it.
1: Okay, I mean, there were very dark forces at work to to make that happen. The propaganda surrounding Brexit, like we, there would be these sunlit uplands, and we were in the EU. We'd have three hundred fifty million pounds per week to spend on the NHS all these lies that were told. And the prime minister of this country, Boris Johnson, was one of the people to tell these horrendous, heedless lies. And he's ended up as the prime minister. We are absolutely screwed as a country right now. I mean, I, I, I never agree with... Uh, I didn't agree with everything that was going on. I didn't like the federalization of the EU. I didn't like uh, the push for the euro or across the board. I think, if, I think accepting, you know, countries like Greece and other countries. I think the way the ECB treated Greece after the crash was absolutely horrendous. You know, and I think the idea of an EU army, all these lunatics pushing for that stuff, there's a lot of things to, to be worried about with the federalisation or uh, the democratic deficit at the heart of the EU, like the, the commissioners and all that kind of stuff. There's, But there are problems to be solved, you know, not to be... Not, you know, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, And one of the worst things for corrupt the cultural sector in this country was even during this ridiculous Brexit negotiations that the, the Tories engaged in with, with so little faith and lying about the EU the whole time, lying about the commission, you know, you know, uh, the, the woman, the uh, um, amazing woman uh, the commissioner, uh, I can't remember her name? Uh, but, uh, but the thing is, they were offered an artistic freedom of visa. They were mm-hmm. actually offered it. No wasn't going to cost them politically anything, and they refused. None, it wasn't going to cost them. The EU said, what about this for the artistic community? And they said no. And it could have been like, you know, can you imagine, like, filmmakers, photographers, dancers, actors, musicians, all being able to travel freely and that free flow of, of creativity. No, we're not having I mean, that. We don't want that. <laughs> so, yeah, unfortunately, the, because there was one politician at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, who's so vilified in this country, in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Uh, like it, It's quite extraordinary what the press did to him. But he was saying in 2016, look, we need to remain in the EU, but we need to push for reform. And I think a lot of people across Europe were saying the same thing. There was lots of discontent in Austria and, and Holland and in Italy. But like you could stay in the EU and push for reform in mm-hmm. the areas you didn't like. Mm-hmm. But that that argument got just drowned out in all the xenophobia and all the racism and the bigotry and and the stupidity and, and you know you you travel around the world you know I travel around the world and and it's very different we just get used to this mindset but of course you're talking about people who who haven't my education came through travel because talking to young German people young Irish people young Italian people read this book you know the history of our troubles you know I I I got my education through travel whereas somebody living in in Middlesbrough. Or, or a, a northern town in England who only reads the Sun or these tabloids, and they don't travel. In, you know, maybe they go on holiday to Torremolinos once a year, or but, they, but they don't travel the way that you and I know that is, where mm-hmm. we can actually communicate and we learn. And they are just—they are a subject to that propaganda. Um, mm-hmm. And you couldn't argue with these people now, of course, with the horrendous results of the Brexit deal and whole businesses going to the wall because they can't trade with Europe. Like it's now sinking in just what's happened, mm-hmm. and all these people that were going, we hate the EU, and now they're going, they're losing their businesses, they're losing their homes, and they're going, well, we, that's not what we voted for. It, it is what you voted for. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's I think it's a shameful period in our history, and it may be, you, you're seeing something historically in this country. You may, we, the UK may lose Scotland in the next if there's an independent referendum. You may lose Wales. There's, there's, there's more, you know, troubles have come back to Northern Ireland. And it may be that the, the Irish people just go, oh, let's just reunify. Let's just get rid of this whole nonsense. Yeah. You know, you may be, that we might be just left with this stupid little country, England, yeah. with all these people going, yeah, we don't need anybody. We're, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're the great British Empire. All these absolute lunatics. And, and it's basically, we just got to get the hell out. You know, the, I'm going to get to Vienna. Sometimes saying, Marcus, you know, <laughs> get me away did, from did these you, lunatics.
0: Did you know, I, I used to live in Austria for almost 10 years. Well, I, was, I, w- I was in Innsbruck, in Tirol. It okay. yeah. Yeah. Was, so was, was, was an interesting, in yeah, it was, it's it's like just uh, south of Munich, just yeah. like an, an hour south of Munich. It was it was an interesting time, I have to say. It was, um, wasn't easy. And at some point, I wanted to leave, um, but I, you know, I was married there, and um, it's absolutely beautiful there. But as as a German, you it's you have a hard time there. It's really uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it will be easier uh, for somebody who doesn't speak German. <laughs> it's, it's I find it fascinating how like um, um, so what kind of signals, let's say, uh, people pick up on to put you in a, uh, in a in a group, right, in a box, you know, that's the German or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and um, it was kind of fascinating with Austria because it was so much about the sound of your voice, right? So in a way, it was It's kind of like, it was really educational how much power, um, you know, the pronunciation of a word has over the emotions um, of, the, yeah. of the person who wants to, have a certain emotion, let's say, you know, towards somebody. It it was it was interesting. I mean, I I I don't want to miss that that experience. But um, yeah, I'm back in Germany now in Berlin.
1: Well, so. yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if I was to live in, in any other country, you know, I'm gonna be going to live in Austria. But I'm living. To, I want to move to live in Vienna. It's like if I was to go to live in, the, in America, I'd live in New York. You know. Yeah. It's, sure. it's not America. You yeah, know, like exactly. Berlin. Berlin isn't necessarily. It's not Germany, you know, no. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I could, I could live in Cologne maybe, but I, I would always want to be in a, a cultural centre. You know, yes. I, I, London has so many things that are wrong, you know, the costs and all that. But obviously not in the pandemic, but normally culturally, it's incredible. You know, you, I, I'm always going to galleries, dance pieces, gigs. I, I have that life, and, and and I. So if I was to move anywhere, like Vienna, Vienna is a little bit different in terms of things that I normally engage with, but it, but it's, it's one of the most culturally rich cities in, in the world and it's got yeah. the, some of the uh, one of the most incredible I mean the the, I think the, the Burke Theatre in Vienna is the most uh, well-funded spoken word theatre in the world with a budget mm. of 80 million euros or something you know mm. so there, there's something about that the fact that that country values art really me, appeals to me and also I don't know about you but I've never been into Croatia or Czech Republic, Romania, Bulgaria. I've never been to these countries. we never mm. toured in those countries. I, I I wouldn't mind plonking myself in Central Europe, and I can go up to Cologne yes. work with my friends. I can go to Rome, and I can then go into... I have some friends in Sofia. I've never seen them. I've never gone to their place, you know. So I would love to be able to have that experience, because I love Eastern European music, and I've always been... Inspired by the harmonies of that, uh, the parts of Europe. You know, remember Lamasté of Wall the sort of yeah, the, sure. The, the Bulgarian women's choir, radio choir. Yeah. Oh my God, mm-hmm. that the harmonies. Mm-hmm. There's something extraordinarily beautiful about music from Romania, and Croatia, and that that part of the world. And um, about I worked with a friend, Matthias yeah, J- J- yeah, who was a, a Viennese composer. And he did on my on water type as a piano piece called Dark Actress. And mm-hmm. Matt's Matt's arranged that. All, it's all like, it sounds like a Hollywood orchestra, but it's just him with his violin and viola. But mm-hmm. you can hear you can hear it because of the way he slides some notes. It's got this. It's got this Eastern European, it's not like a Croatian thing going on. You know, it's like <laughs> that's that that mm. comes from the East. That's not like, that's not from the Northern Europe. That's mm. something else. It's kind of interesting how musically you can just. Pick up on those things,
0: you know. You know, I, I used to play with a uh, violin player from Hungary, uh, Zoltan Lantos, and he has like this incredible mix of that Eastern European flavor, like the Gypsy style, and yeah, yeah, and yeah. and also he he spent quite a few years in India studying Indian classical oh, wow. music, so he has a mix of those two things. That's oh my it's God. pretty pretty amazing. <laughs> yes. Hey, so uh, you said like your new album is is that out yet or is
1: it's coming out soon. I mean, like I, be, I did an interview on BBC just now, and they played the next single, not the current single, which is The Dance. So mm-hmm. it's going to be, I think there's two more tracks. Apparently the way it works with Spotify and uh, streaming services is that you can't release tracks as singles that are on product that's already been released. Mm-hmm. So we had to put a bunch of tracks out and then put the album out probably at the end of May. Yeah. So I hope to talk to the, the wonderful director Sarah Shearer, who's based in Vienna, who did the video for Beautiful Words. I'm trying; we're trying to organise another video for the fourth track. Mm-hmm. Um, what's beautiful about that is Beautiful Words is being entered in short film festivals all around the world, and there's a finalist in New York, and finalists in in Toronto, in Venice. I love that, you know. And I love the fact that we have a piece of work that's actually a short film. You know, it's kind of a, 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 an art piece. You know, right. I kind of would love to. I'm, maybe you will be in this world, but I'm trying to get I'm trying to get some funding uh, for a couple more films to do it as short films rather than mm. a video. It's not like a video for me; it's like a short film yeah. because mm. I love that. I love dance, you know. I love modern dance. I love contemporary dance. Um, so I love I love to be involved more in that world, you know, of uh, theatre and dance. So it's kind of leaning towards that a little bit, you know. Yeah, I, I
0: have to say, I was I was pretty surprised by that video or that you know. Yeah. that film yeah. that went along with, with Beautiful Wounds. Um, incredible. So what, what's, what's the next, what's the second single? Or maybe, maybe before we talk about that, just tell me a little bit about the album, kind of like where, uh, when did you start writing it or where, where did the, the impetus come from to do it?
1: Well, it was put together over quite a period of time actually, probably uh, I mean the music probably could have been released at the beginning of 2019 I mean, because mm-hmm. it was uh, ready, but of course, a lot of events happened in our in our lives through that period that you know meant that things stopped. Also, the pandemic. We we could have released the album last year, so mm-hmm. it's, it's been around a while. But I think the album was kind of recorded between 2013 2018. You know, mm-hmm. so bits so bit, and along with other. I've got loads of other things I recorded that you know that are in certain various stages of construction. You know. But it just seemed to be a body of work at a certain point. I was working at the studio in the Al White called Shale Abbey Studios and mm-hmm. we just said we've got we've, this is an album, you know, what, what do you think? And they've got a label, so let's let's do something. And we put together that video. The video was recorded at the beginning of in January two thousand nineteen. And then like in, in obviously uh, I don't know people might not sorry, but you, you you would know that my brother left us in in beginning of May of that year. And mm-hmm. of course, you know, that just everything had to stop for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, but my brother's actually on the album, actually. He played on the track. He came down to the studio in the summer of 2018 just to hang and play on this track and play this incredible guitar. Mm-hmm. So the, when we were putting together the album, it was actually the, the, the owner of the studio said, you really should use that track because it wasn't meant for this album. It was meant for a, another project called a, a, a theatre and film project. Mm-hmm. But he said this this is your track, you wrote it, and this is your vibe you all, you're all over it, and this is your brother playing guitar and i spoke su- I spoke to Boone's daughter and she she was really for it, you know, so I didn't want to be I didn't want to sort of exploit it in any way yeah. but like it's great because you know he's on he's on my album. you know so mm-hmm. I feel really good about it. so there's all sorts of kind of crazy twists and turns and you know, that's probably a very dark period, but also some very positive things and, and a lot of things happen like uh, the single that's out at the moment the dance was recorded in a certain way. I began recording that in 2013, 14 and it was a certain thing that was sitting there. And then I went to see my friend on the Isle of Wight, this incredible musician called Rupert Brown very you'd love him, but he's he's not if you asked him to play B, you know, E flat nine, he would he wouldn't he wouldn't be able to do it. You know, but he could he could he just does everything by sound and figuring it out. But the parts he comes up with are extraordinary and the sonics incredible so we worked on this ostinato piano part on his little deck piano and all of a sudden it started to take on a life and then we worked on the drum track He had an old a british uh, four into one mixer from the 50s called a vortexian and it had also had this incredible compression a bit like a it's almost like a fairchild and um, so you listen to the snare snare drum sound on on the darts you know it's just i'm playing the drums really quietly with this like a bit of uh, parchment paper on the snare, like just tapping around like that. And it sounds huge, you know. And then mm-hmm. the incredible bass player, Mark Neary, did this beautiful bass part. Bern Locker, who's, a, who's an incredible guitarist based in Vienna, did the, these guitars. So all of a sudden it starts to... Uh, so it took a while to get to the place where it, it, needed, it sounded like it needed a sound, you know. And I think now I've kind of figured out how I want to make music having gone through it. But if you'd have heard this, these tunes four years ago, they were in various states of disrepair. Mm-hmm. It was a very different proposition, mm-hmm. and I've had to go through that process to figure out how I want to make records. There's a track on the album called "The." It's called the "Thank You" song. I, I couldn't think of a title. It's basically a song of gratitude to all the people that helped me along the way, the teachers and friends. And, but uh, it was it was it's really stripped out and it's very simple. And when I kind of can when we when when we recorded it and we conceived of it, I really felt. A real, um, uh, how, how do I say this? I really felt like a very powerful uh, connection to the the space in that song, and I I've been used to having a lot of layers, you know. So I think going forward from this, the music I'm going to make will be much more like that, like more like as if you're in a band, where it's just elements rather than just loads of l- 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 string pads. And I mm. mean, I, I'm, I mean, I, I love layered music, but I think going forward, I I think, I think during the course of this album I kind of learned how I want to make music go forward but it actually hangs together as a body of work and I'm really proud of the sound, who knows what people make of the songwriting but I think sonically it's as good as anything around mm-hmm. you know, we, we worked, me and Julian on the mixes, we worked our backsides off for months, I mean we weren't absolutely crazy on it but in, in that way that, you know, we I love, you know I love going crazy on mixes. <laughs> uh, you know, no, I said, I said two dB of the BB, not one dB, Julian. You know, is, like is,
0: is Julian still still working a lot?
1: Yeah, he's doing a lot of mixing and stuff in Australia, and, he, and he's, mm. he's he's great. You know, he's, and he's what I love about Julian is like like most of the musicians I work with, he's relentless. He won't give up. Mm-hmm. He, you know, that's not right. That's not right. Even when we actually recut the the. Um, uh, the dance as a single, we actually went back to the mix and he started fiddling about. And there was uh, as a bass player in Germany called Peter Inegawa, who lives in Berlin. I don't know if you know Peter, but he's a yeah. serious classical guy, but a really great jazz bass player. And mm-hmm. uh, he's on one track. But Peter had done these kind of, you know, almost cello-like things in the upper register on a double bass. And it was in the track, but we hadn't heard it. When Julian went back to read d- do the single, he said, "There's, there's this thing here, you know." I, I pushed it, and you hear it, and like, and it's like, oh, I just love that about mixing—how you know, somebody can bring that stuff out. So then we had yeah. to recut the album because, you know, we need to do that. But that, but that's gonna, be, that's gonna be on the album, you know. So I, I love working with people that care so much like that, like I'm sure you do, and and, and people yeah. like Wally, and, and I'm sure, I know I do. I. I I won't, I won't ever, I, I don't work with anybody that says that, that that'll that do, you know, and nobody I work with ever does that. Oh, that that's okay. Yeah, So it's, yeah. it's great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's always, it's only finished if the shrink wrap is on the CD, right? That's kind yeah, of, exactly, the... exactly, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. I, if I had a chance now, there's a song that I would re-record the vocal. I didn't, Cause when, when I was recording the vocal that year, uh, I didn't know, but I had an ulcer. And I didn't know how bad it was. So I was coughing all the time. Like that, you know, coughing off the mic. And It just sounds a bit weird to me. I know I can do it better, but I think that's cool. There's a track, okay, I think that vocal I could do, you know, i do that again. But I think I think you always need that, one of those on an album. Oh, damn, I forgot. I think on on Wheel Machine, I remember when we were on the road doing the tour for that. Mark well, on the bus one time we were listening to um, a physical presence and Mark said oh shit we left the harmony off the chorus we forgot mm-hmm. the harmony on, and there's a he played the demo yeah there's a harmony on the chorus like a physical presence perfected in, so it was a harmony and we'd forgotten it you know <laughs> so what what happens let's go back and do it again
0: and you know it's those it's those things that the the people then love you know like the little mistakes yeah. and the little you yeah, know, yeah yeah.
1: Yeah, I still yeah about but Jeremy, we love like we we're talking about. Like, there's so many records that have these massive mistakes on them mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have left give, given my own nature. But you're, you're totally fine with it. We're talking about like Black Dog, you know, uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> You know, but Jimmy Page could never play that well. Mm. So when he's playing, you know, he's actually, uh, he's like rushing and John Paul Jones is trying to hold him back. And But it's like some of the biggest rock albums of all time. Nowadays, the, the producer would probably go, hang about, let's put that in, we'll, we could time stretch that or something, you know. But no, it's like, uh, you know, and, and we all hear it, don't we? But mm. it's fine. It's Black Dog. It's Led Zeppelin. Get over yeah, it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, I mean, there's, a, there's a John McLaughlin album, isn't it, called Electric Guitarist, where he does all these pieces with uh, various combinations musicians he worked with, Carlos Santana and Jack Bruce and Tony Williams and these like that. And there's one track where Narada Nir- Michael Walden's on drums with Salma Santana, where the drums and the rhythm, the percussion go completely out of time with the mm. rhythm track. And me and Mark, when we first heard that, probably the end of the 70s, go, what, did you hear this? <laughs> They're out, and then they come back in again, you know, and mm. you hear it every time, but you've kind of, that's okay, it's fine, you know. <laughs> it's amazing how, why am I so perfectionist then? Why, well, I've got to have some mistakes in there. I've got to have some speeding up or something, or I've got to drop a stick, you know, because it's, it's cool, you know, I, I enjoy music like that, but I can't seem to make it myself. It's got to be right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, got to be true to your own nature, right?
0: <laughs> hey, so um at the very beginning of the conversation, you mentioned Jeremy Stacey, right? Yeah. Has he been a friend of yours?
1: Yeah, I've known Jeremy a long time. He's been a very close friend for maybe the last 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I knew, knew of him before, but we since I've been back in London, I came mm-hmm. back in 2010. So we, we're very close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's amazing. I love Jeremy. He's my I think he's one of the finest drummers around. He's also pro- probably, in a certain way, if you look at it a certain way, he's, he's kind of the, want the UK's finest drummer. Because although he, you know other drummers can do certain things, maybe on a technical level, better, but but mm-hmm. when he plays rock, he sounds he he sounds authentic. When he mm-hmm. plays fusion, he sounds authentic.
0: Mm-hmm. When he
1: plays jazz or pop, he sounds authentic. Mm-hmm. Jeremy is the most forensic kind of. Musician, I know that if you ask him to do a session, he'll go in there with like 12 snare drums, three kits, three bags of cymbals, and he'll be changing things around. And he might change the whole kit for the next track. You know, he's not, mm-hmm. he's, he's just, and he's thought about it. It's, it's incredible like that, Jeremy. He's got this amazing, thing. you know, there are drummers like people like Carl and Ash, these incredible groove pocket drummers, but they're, they're kind of known for, that they play their way. Whereas with Jeremy, he, he can play like, uh R- ringer or he can he can play he can play like kind of uh Alvin Jones you know or or he can you know play like a fusion head, you know mm. it's it's pretty wild you
0: know yeah. to me it's still amazing and just wonderful that he ended up in King Crimson and uh yeah. playing playing keyboards and uh you know he had solo spots on on keyboards in King Crimson incredible. as well it's like incredible yeah yeah i would i would also i would really love to talk to him as well for this at some point
1: yeah, yeah. Those 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 guys actually, both of them. I mean, Paul is Paul is another one. Mm-hmm. Paul, Stacey, like they're they're extraordinary people, the Stacey brothers, because they both started life dancers. Act, I think Jeremy was a ballet dancer originally. When I was a kid. But they they both became actors, and they mm-hmm. came to music later. But you listen to, they've just got these incredible brains. You know, I mean, I Jeremy never played piano around me much, and then all of a sudden he's doing that King Crimson stuff. Like, you know, doing Keith Tippett's keyboard parts, you know, how the hell is that? Yeah. 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 And you listen to you listen to Paul Stacey's guitar playing, one of the most extraordinary, you know, it's incredible what he could do, and it's mm-hmm. just completely self-taught, natural talent, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I, it's almost like that, what's quite cool about people is they come from it from a different angle, they were actors and then they became musicians, so they, they have a different mind the way the the matrix is wired in a
0: different way yeah 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 exactly yeah if i have to say for me um making music was always a little bit of a of a puzzle you know like something that i had to you know it was it didn't it never really came natural at least that's what i was what that's what i was thinking for a long time so but now you know i have some thoughts that maybe there's like a specific talent for composition that maybe is something that I've been gifted with rather than something that I had to work on, you know, but, or or I think in, you know, in the end, it's just like your, your, uh, your passion and interest in, in a subject, right. That then over the years, you can't help but become good at it. Right. And yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I think it's like, I think it's it's like when you're, we we were very isolated in the other way. So it's just like, we had a, we deserved, we wanted to, had a need to do it. And, I think it's quite cool that we weren't exposed to so many young you know, other musicians, like of, of a high, you know that were doing things in a certain way because we were just finding our own way, mm. you know, and a lot of that was you know rehearsing through the winters without being exposed to any other musicians around because you know the, the, the Isle of Wight was full of seaside towns that had hundreds of musicians every summer because all the little bars had trios it before recorded you Nina know, DJs you know it was like the trio quartet. All the hotels had musicians, you know, so hundreds of musicians. In the winter, it was just completely dead. So we are finding our own way with it. It wasn't like we were, um, you know, and uh, uh, we, we were desperate to do it. We had this absolute need to do it. And you have to have that. And you have to have the, the courage and the balls, basically, to go, no, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I want to, you know, when somebody says you need to have this, you either you, you, well, why? You, know, you don't just go, yeah, I'll do that then you know i was mm-hmm. always getting stick when i first came to london about doing rim shots because i love the sound of a rim shot all all the producers want you to play the middle of the drum so no i'm not doing that you know I'm gonna, i you know i think you need to be a bit like that to get to, to develop a career in music you need to be a little bit hard you know hard-skinned and yeah. be quite well screw you i'm gonna do it my way you know
0: yeah. yeah for sure for sure yeah and you know like in a in a way um um, being on the Isle of White and uh, being in the north of Finland, for example, where you know you have uh, many months of of dark, and you can oh, you can yeah. really you can really woodshed and and I you know sometimes I you know I, I I envy people who have a have a youth like that you know where you can really like for me it started very late like I was twenty when I when I actually understood that there's such a thing as you know. Uh, practicing an instrument or something, you know, it was uh, yeah. ridiculous. But my love for music was always there, and um, and I'm I, I couldn't be uh, happier. Actually, having having had my career up until this point, you know, and now things yeah. seem seem like totally open again. Like, you know, I had I had a life before I was a touring musician because, um, like, the the Stickman gig, which was the first real international uh, gig I had started when i was uh, 37 or 38 so really late really late so so for me this this pandemic basically just meant going back to an older life that i knew right so it was easier for me than it is for others And, and now you know i don't know let's just let's just see like tours get pushed um to next year to next year and i i really hope that uh I mean, Tony Levin just posted something today that they have like four shows in the, in the summer with, you know, he has a, he has a band with his brother, like a jazz trio or quartet. And, okay.
1: All and, right.
0: And so it seems that some, you know, at least a few shows are, you know, happening again in the summer. So let's see, you know, I, I got, I got a visa, a new visa for the U S in uh, July, uh, 2019 and, um, uh, so I couldn't couldn't really use it. It's only good for three years. So in a year, it's, uh, oh, it's over. There. Yeah. And those are a, a real pain in the ass to get. So, uh, so I don't know. I don't know. It was it was a real pleasure talking to you, Phil.
1: Yeah, you uh, too, Marcus. Uh, nice uh, to have a chat.
0: you yeah, <laughs> yes, good. it's really wonderful. Yeah, I think like the first time you wrote to me was like almost fifteen, maybe fifteen years ago on MySpace. We 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 were oh, yeah. in contact back then. Yeah. I think when I
1: came back to London you, you, you there was talk of a tour, wasn't it? there? Was something yeah, happening. exactly.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I contacted you about that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I was kind of like finding my feedback in London, yeah, but it's nice. You know, if I get to Vienna, I mean I, I do want to get to Vienna in terms of living there. It may may be part time initially, about half, half the month, you know, two weeks on, two weeks off. But yeah, it'd be, be, be nearer you. So oh,
0: wonderful. <laughs> hey, so so how old are your kids now?
1: Well, my my eldest son is forty forty one, mm-hmm. and then uh, Jack is thirty two, and Holly's twenty eight now. So yeah, getting up there. So uh, Alex is. I'm working with Alex. on I'm actually doing a session tomorrow, and Alex is the engineer. So Alex is really talented. He's got a beautiful voice. Actually, he's a couple mm-hmm. of songs, and he's got really interesting music. He's he's an amazing musician, Alex. Like you, he's he's coming to it late. But he's plugging in. He's plugging into the right socket. But he's got so much to offer. In fact, mm-hmm. going forward. The, the live gigs, he'll be kind of my, like my MD working with me on the, you know, organising it and playing keyboards so I can play, he can play drums so I can, if I play keyboards he can play drums sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and my son, Alec, my son Jackson lives in China, he's a, he's a, uh, works with language companies and teachers out there and my daughter works for Dance from Bear, she's a technical manager for mm-hmm. dance companies. Mm-hmm. She, worked, she worked with Hofest Schechter for many years, it's a great dance company mm-hmm. and now she's with Dance from Bear so yeah, she's, she inhabits that world of, so like a couple of years ago, she was in Paris in Montmartre doing a, a piece and we all went to Montmartre for Christmas. to see So it's kind of like, that's great. You know? I don't know about you. Do you have kids?
0: Yeah. A very, very young daughter. She's still a baby. Oh. So, <laughs> but you know, it seems, seems like you've passed on your, your love for the arts and for, for languages, right. Or you know, for words. Words,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, and now, and now you get it back because my daughter's turning me on to music, and my son's turned me on to music. You know, my mm. daughter turned me on to Bon Iver, You know, um, not a long time ago now, but mm. that's great. I love it. Get you get 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 paying it back. You know, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, looking, they, looking yeah, they, they they had a good musical education. But one thing that well, it's funny because I, I was just being sent this by uh, my my wonderful friend Paul Waller did all the artwork for this box set. And uh, oh, it's amazing because they got they found the original masters. But mm-hmm. the thing is, the, the kids have never asked me much stuff about level 42. I mean, of course, they you know, but they never say, Hey, dad, you know, when you wrote that lyric, what do you, you know? They never showed the a real interest, but I'm going to buy them one each of these and I'm going to ask them questions in about a, a year's time. So, okay, well, what do you think about I want eyes, you know? What do you think about the lyrics, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> some interest, god damn it. I <laughs>
0: <feel> <laughs> Phil, you did some wonderful work there, and um, yeah, really, really, I can't. Well, you, I think you you must have heard it many times, but it's really uh, uh, level forty two is an incredible. That period was incredible, and yeah, I I think time. that a lot a lot of a lot of musicians nowadays they they grew up on on this music, and and I don't I don't know. I mean, that, you know, like when you were mentioning before, like. During the time, I don't think there was any other band that somehow like compared with Level 42 at all. There was nothing. Or am I wrong? I mean, were there bands that weren't successful that were kind of like in the same league?
1: We, I think what was interesting about us, we were coming from, you know, having grown up with progressive rock and McLaughlin, the Weather Report, yeah. and my we, we were coming from a place of, of very kind of out there music. And the fact, the first gig that Mark and my brother and I did uh, a Greenpeace benefit when I was 19, it was on the Isle of Wight mm-hmm. and it was, Mark had this song called Killer Whale, actually it's, it saved the whale, this concert, but he did a song called Killer Whale. It sounded like Kill a Whale, but it's like, you know, Killer whale. and it was all these kind of weird, you know, the you know the Hendrix chord with a seventh, with a flat, with a raised ninth or something, you know, so it's got that kind of, yeah. uh, you know, the kind of, uh, uh, uh. Um, and so we were coming from this place, of very, um, angular music and we, we, it was in us but then we were trying to write because of Love Meeting Love, trying to write contemporary kind of funky songs or whatever and trying to please the record company but when so, you know, we, we could do that but then we had all this musical stuff that could be added to that so sometimes it was really simple but sometimes like a, 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 you know June tune on the first album which is a, a melody of Marks had that kind of Stanley clarke inspired kind of thing on the bass but that's a really beautiful tune and it's not a three chord trick it's just a wonderful journey musically and that just comes from him so there was that in the air as well as love games you know the four core trick of love Games. so it's kind of it's interesting so I think it gave a lot of musicians hope because a band could be musical within the context of writing contemporary pop music or funk pop music or whatever there was also the musical element I think I think I remember Jeremy saying that it was like cool for his generation to come through that band because we were doing some instrumentals as well as doing top 20 records. You know, I think it mm-hmm. was a nice, I think it was flying the flag for a little bit of musicality in, in a certain period of time. And we were an accidental band. We got in there by mistake. Once mm-hmm. we got in there, they couldn't get rid of us. So <laughs> I think it was, I think we, we, you know, we had some nice, you know, I know you said about the tribe, we had some nice chords, you know, so I think that's what I love about that, that it did inspire people to maybe pick up an instrument or inspire people to have a bit of courage in their own creativity, to not just go along with what they're told you can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause it's all about, as you know, it's all about finding your own voice, you know, yeah, yeah. not many, you not. you're not interested in hearing another Stevie Wonder or another David Bowie. You're going to follow David Bowie. You're going to look for artists that have a similar courage to do something, to just do their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I think that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of, that we could have an album that could have eyes with a falling on it and the Chinese way. I mean, how does that work? You know, <laughs> or, you know, or like Heathrow, he Heathrow and turn it on. How do you do that? And like, you know, how, do you, how does that work? Tune tune and love games? You know, how does it, it's because it's what we did. And so it's then what you say it is, you know. So yeah, it was kind of a ring and a prayer, but uh, it was a beautiful journey yeah it's great mm-hmm. it's good mm-hmm. to look back on it now with with some gratitude and really why I wrote that song thank you is to understand how how privileged we were to go through that experience and and now look back on it all the bitterness all the rancor that's all gone all that nonsense the politics is all over mm-hmm. doesn't matter what, what what remains is some really nice tunes and great recordings and uh, 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 some energy that was good positive you know
0: yeah, it's it's good to see that you're proud about that box set.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't, I haven't listened to it yet because I haven't got a CD player. I've just got myself a I've just got myself a new car, which has this, it's but it's a little bit older. It has like four years old car it has a CD player in it, so I can put this in the car. And really, <laughs> really get my kids fired up. From we'll go. I, I'll, so I'm going to go on a journey. We'll start with early tapes. We'll work our way through. <laughs> I'm going to. put Put them through the mill.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Phil. Okay,
1: yeah? Marcus, look after yourself.
0: I will. You too. And yeah. see you. See you someday in the flesh. Yeah.
1: See you. So have to have to we'll meet up soon. Yeah. For a coffee. Yes. yes. All right. <laughs> bye bye. Take care. Take, Take care. Bye bye. See you, man. Bye.